HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring food for the eyes, how the art and culinary worlds collide. It's incredibly elaborate. It's a feast for the eyes, a banquet dinner with garnished ham, turkey, and an array of accompaniments. We shot uh, baguettes with like paint dripping off of them with the blue, white, and red from the French flag. Oh, what did the student tell me? They said, the camera eats first. And it's so true. It's so true. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview someone who inspires me with their work in the world or just who they are in the world. And today, I have someone who impresses me on both levels, Christine Haney, who I've known, wow, how long do you think we've known each other? I think we met like 2012, 2013. Oh, that seems so recent. That feels like forever. <laughs> it feels um, like forever. <laughs> Christine is an incredible investigative journalist, and we met when I was still at Food and Wine, and I've watched her career as she's gone on to investigate food crimes. And that was uh, a show that she did with ZPZ, Zero Point Zero Productions, and you launched Rotten on Netflix, and now, most recently, you've been a Spotlight Fellow at the Boston Globe. And the piece mm-hmm. that she's been working on for six entire months is about the danger in our salad bowls. Welcome, Christine. Thank you. It's great to see you. So what brought you to this particular topic, which is E. coli in our leafy greens? Well, in between seasons of Rotten, I was working at Politico reporting on food, and my editor asked me to do a piece on a romaine lettuce outbreak in November of 2017. And I was really interested in this because I was pregnant, and so... I was watching what I could eat and couldn't eat and asked my OB, and he said, I don't know anything about this outbreak. So I started reporting on it then, and then started, before I had my daughter, also investigating E. coli outbreaks in soy nut butter. And that 
investigation uh, got a James Beard nomination for looking at the recall system in America. So then when I was trying to lose my baby weight, we once again had <laughs> another outbreak. And this time it was a deadly outbreak in the spring of 2018. And five people died in that. 240 people were sick. And so I really started asking a lot of questions about what the heck can I eat when I'm trying to lose my baby weight? Or what can you eat and not die? <laughs> what can you eat and not die? Exactly. Yeah. So when we uh, reconvened for Rotten Season 2, I had proposed something on recalls, including romaine lettuce, and it's not really entertainment to go down this path, so that was quickly turned down. But I thought there was something there, and I just made it my own little mission to start investigating this and find a way to get it funded. And funded you did. Yes. And there are many reasons why this is actually a very difficult thing to investigate. And it seems you came up against challenges with the FDA. There's just less reporting on these outbreaks than it seems like you feel that there should be. Absolutely, yes. We think that um, one in 10 cases are only what's reported out there. The other thing is if you have a Caesar salad with romaine lettuce that's contaminated with E. coli, it's a gestation period of seven days. So if you go to your doctor and you're really sick, they'll say, okay, when did you have a salad? And often with a lot of women, they've had a lot of salads in that you know seven-day period, and you would have to trace back each one to each farm. The other thing is uh, a lot of the lettuce industry is still paper-based, and so there isn't computerized tracking for a lot of the lettuce we consume in America. So I ran up against a lot of challenges. Then I started working with the FDA and would try to get public records, and they would block out large sections of the records that I was fighting to get. And in one case, I figured out that there was a whole outbreak happening in the fall of 2019 that they had not disclosed to the public and went back and confronted them. And they said, well, we thought it was over. So, you know, why scare people? And then when they realized that the globe was going forward with it, they announced it and said they had meant to do it all along. There, there's this kind of changing view in public health, like, don't tell people because you don't want to scare them. And then if you tell, scare them too many times, they'll stop listening to you, which is a legitimate argument. But a lot of people I've talked to said that's changing. We can handle the news. We're like inundated with news all the time. So that's one thing. And then it is really hard to trace since everything's typically paper-based. That's difficult to do. Then there's getting access. So you're trying to trace back a product and get access. Um, there's also, they have very few inspectors. So like USDA has inspectors on the plants. You don't have that same structure happening with our leafy greens. When you say the plants, you mean beef. The, the beef industry has 7,000 plus inspectors, inspectors, investigators. Yeah. And, uh, and it's completely different in leafy greens. Yes. Why is that? So the reason that happened is in 1993, we had this massive E. coli outbreak involving Jack in the Box, and four people died, and that triggered a lot of changes and kind of crackdown on the meatpacking industry. There was a lot happening, you know, even that predated that with the publication of Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. But there was this kind of siren call that came out of the Jack in the Box outbreak. So a lot of people I interviewed for this who were even involved with Jack in the Box saw a lot of changes there. But those same changes have not happened in leafy greens, just as we're eating more salad than we ever have. Leafy greens are now more dangerous to eat than beef when it comes to E. coli. The percentage and prevalence of E. coli um, cases is higher in leafy greens than beef, and it, it just surpassed it in recent years. And one professor I talked to for my investigation, his son died in the Jack in the Box outbreak. 
And he said he was more concerned about salad today than he is, you know, people who eat hamburgers. And his own son died from that, what started with the hamburger. His son actually had never eaten a hamburger. He just played with a kid in his daycare whose parents worked at Jack in the Box. How is that even possible? Well, what I found in a lot of my reporting is, you know, you're changing a lot of diapers. Wow. So you also have a vulnerable population with E. coli. It's typically really little kids, and it's old people. And the little boy I mentioned and profile in my piece, the reason we were able to get such good reporting on him is because he was two. He ate five bites of his dad's salad and has suffered traumatic brain injury from that, from the E. coli I got. But we were able to trace it because he only had one salad. Because, you know, he's little and it's hard to get him to eat lots of vegetables. So it was a very clear trace back from the pizza place where his parents ordered the salad to the distributor to the farm. And they had a direct match of E. coli strain. Wow. As a journalist, how did you find that family? I found that family by talking to Bill Marler, the food safety lawyer who's based in Seattle. Actually, when I started Food Crimes, you know, I left the New York Times. You were my wonderful source when I was on the media desk. And he was one of the first people I called. I said, I want to do something for Zero Point Zero Production about the intersection of food and crime. They had hired me as a consultant to see if this would go anywhere. And Bill Marler, I just started talking to him to the first week there. And I worked with one of his clients on the dairy episode for season one of Rotten. And then just kept talking to him about E. coli, strangely. <laughs> <laughs> and um, then actually worked with him on my Politico investigation on soy nut butter and then started looking at these cases. Um, and you kind of try all different types of sources, especially with Spotlight. So they're wonderful about putting you in touch with different attorneys and different databases. But with Marler, I think there was an established rapport that he could trust that I would work with a family and follow them and embed with them for six months and be respectful of their lives. What was that like, embedding with a family where a child had suffered brain injury? The traumatic, a traumatic brain injury. Traumatic brain injury yeah. as a result of eating five bites of lettuce. It is so devastating, and it was really hard reporting as a parent. Um, you know, I've covered a lot of things over the years. I was the first person sent into 9-11 for the Washington Post New York Bureau, and there was a certain element of covering it, almost like covering terrorism, because the victims are so traumatized that um, one thing I found with Lucas is he has relatives speaking about him in the past and present tense as he's lying there. It was really devastating and hard and you feel such a gift that you get to walk away at night and go home to your family. And the age was just wrenching. Uh, my daughter's coming into the age of when Lucas got sick. So she recently climbed into my own lap and tried to eat my salad. She's doing all the kind of the things that he was doing just as he got sick. And you also find that these families' lives are destroyed. And so you're trying journalistically to kind of put that all to the side and just focus on the victim. So the conditions of reporting are challenging because there's a lot of distractions. How do the parents interact with you? Because you're just bringing up something that they must feel so powerless against. Yes. And you're constantly trying to be respectful and just you want to bond with your children because you're both going through this experience, but you know your experience is so very different from theirs. So it, it took a lot of kind of trust and building and respect. And, and then I felt like fiercely protective of them. You know, So you go through all these emotions when you're forming a relationship with a family like this and a story like this. And at the end, I feel like you came away with a very strong feeling of what went wrong 
and what could be done to fix it. What conclusions did you draw after six months of investigating? Yes, I'm one of those Pollyannas who believes that people didn't really mean for this to happen Mm -hmm. and um, really want to think the best in people. I did find in my six months of investigating the FDA that, um, one, I would seek documents and they would just block them out and I would fight and fight to get them. Uh, when they didn't disclose a outbreak and then suddenly announced it, and a top FDA official was calling people in the industry to say, between you and me, I was always going to announce it, I knew I was dealing with something very different. And um, I know that, one, the FDA could benefit from more resources. They have my full sympathy. They have really hard jobs. They're being tasked to take on powerful industries, But when I really tried to confront them and and almost get them to admit they needed help, I don't feel like I could get that on the reporting. Because what I saw in the emails that I fought to get through public records, a lot of FDA officials were working night and day. They were working through their own Thanksgivings, just trying to keep our food safe, but they weren't being given enough resources. And I almost feel like there is a culture of fear that's happening at the agency. What are your thoughts about what the farmers themselves can do to protect their end customers? Well, I find with the farmers that I think they are trying and that I did see that there is a shift happening. They want to be more helpful and more responsive. And they're not always being kept in the loop as well. So we've just had three outbreaks that uh, were traced to a common grower in Salinas. And if I were a grower in that same area, I would want that person kind of outed and so that they don't make me look bad. FDA won't disclose information about that. And why is that? Um, They say it's an issue of like trade secrets and that they need to protect the business interests of... Why is that a trade secret? It's this age-old thinking of that happens with FDA. It happened in my investigation for Politico as well, that to disclose information about like where what retailers are selling a contaminated product would be like in violation of trade secrets. What's the definition of a trade secret? I mean, that just seems crazy. Like it's a farm and they were responsible for... There is this belief in kind of protecting business. I believe when I spoke with FDA officials, you know, they said their mandate is to protect public safety, but there is a real emphasis on protecting business and working with business and taking time for business. One thing you see if you read through hundreds of pages of FDA employee emails is that they're having to meet with industry and kind of take time for them. And and that thing would take up a lot of your day. Mm-hmm. And is education and science part of the solution here? I mean, E. coli festers in the water. But is there a way for a farmer to farm more cleanly, scientifically? Can technology help solve this? Because we're talking about people dying. We're talking about people dying from eating a salad. Yes. Um, Well, what they can do is they are trying to introduce uh, more rigid irrigation standards, um, but they're still kind of waiting to roll those out for a couple of years. So if you or I were growers, we would have to kind of introduce them ourselves. Um, And and why would they take so long to introduce those standards? That's a good question that um, elected officials like Rosa DeLauro um, have all brought to FDA, like, why are you waiting? One thing that former Commissioner Scott Gottlieb said is that it's a very complicated answer, and so we we have more work to do in this, and we need more information. And I should say that people don't really know completely what's causing these outbreaks. And there's a lot of science and a lot of research that needs to be done. And a lot of research could be poured into this area. 
And what would the research, where would it be pointed toward? One thing that we found in the spring 2018 outbreak that sickened 240 people and killed five in the U.S. is that in sediment samples near the water, they had found E. coli that was near a large cattle feed operation within a mile of it. So they had three samples that tested positive there. But in the California cases, you don't have large-scale cattle feed operations. You have the presence of animals, but you don't have large-scale farming. One scientist I talked to was even looking at flies. Like if a fly sits in manure and then it flies over to the lettuce field next door, is that what's causing it? Another thing that has come up in the reporting is early frost. Does an early frost make the lettuce leaves more vulnerable than ever before? So the research could determine the many ways in which the E. coli is born. Yes, absolutely. That it's not just born in one way and then you attack it. Yes. But in fact, environmental factors just play a gigantic role and therefore it's very difficult to control. Yes, and there's so much we don't know about why people are getting sick from lettuce that even with the wonderful resources of Spotlight, we just we weren't getting those concrete answers at this point. After a six-month investigation and actually years in this business of looking into food crimes scandals, recalls. Do you eat salad? I do. You do? I do eat salad, yes. Do you ever take a bite and wonder, like, what's going to happen to me? Could this be terrible for me? What I do, and, you know, because you're writing about salad all day, so I'm like, I feel like a salad, you know? <laughs> <laughs> really? After your reporting, I don't feel like a salad. I'm like, and I kind of want a burger. I feel safer. <laughs> there are a few things I don't eat. Like, I won't eat a bagged Caesar salad right, right. now. Um, I would just kind of wait on that. Um, I eat shrimp differently. There's been such great reporting, like, from AP on um, farmed shrimp and the conditions there. So that's something that I just don't eat it unless I'm going to eat good quality shrimp. I eat kale because I've, I've been reading and studying that the kale leaf often seems to be a hardier one. We grew our own lettuce in the summer. I'll try hydroponic. Um, you'll see some like hydroponic you know, brands through Fresh Direct and in your local supermarket. So I'm just really conscious of that. I stay away from bagged lettuce. And, and why is bad, bagged lettuce potentially bad? Well, just in the last three outbreaks we had, two out of three, they did trace to, to bagged lettuce. I mean, also, you know, one scientist I talked to said when you're, like, washing the lettuce and you're putting them in a sudsy tub, it's almost like the family and it's bath night and everybody's use the same bath water. So that was just kind of the analogy that I was given. So when I think about that, I just stay away from the bagged lettuce. When I read through all of the pieces that you did, first of all, I mean, there's there's some guilt, there's some fear. <laughs> Lots of emotions came up as I was reading all the journalism that you've done. You know, where I sit in the food world, like, it's so joyful. It, you know, it brings people together around a table. And you're looking at the underbelly. Yeah, I am looking at the underbelly, but it's fascinating. It's also fascinating when you talk to parents because so many kids get sick and they're always coming in with the best intentions. I gave my kids some salad. I gave my kid some healthy soy nut butter. I And then they get sick and the, like the guilt that they go through and then how they try to navigate that with their spouse. With these settlements, they can, you know, if you get really sick, they, they can be multi-million dollar settlements. That's never been a windfall for anyone because there has been such a cost to the medical issues that they've had, the emotional issues. Like, what price can you put on having a pre-adolescent child who has a fear of food? Like, there's no price, you know, or... Or if your marriage breaks up. Your marriage the, breaks up, yeah. 
That's a common one that I've seen, too, in the reporting. Let's talk about the soy nut butter. That brings to mind recalls, right? So yes. a food is discovered to be contaminated, and it's recalled. Are there t- lots of recalls, and we don't hear about them? Um, what is the recall status of food in America today? That's a great question. Um, there are quite a few recalls happening, but the FDA employs pretty standard you know, techniques for getting that information out. When In my reporting, I profiled a law firm partner from the Boston area. He went for a jog. He came home. He had his gluten-free English muffin, put a little nut butter on it, picked up at his phone, and it, his Amazon said, oh, your product's been recalled. So he was like, oh, okay, well, I'll eat the English muffin, but then I won't eat the healthy protein shake I made with it and threw that away. And within a month, he was so sick from um, E. coli that his children had to be called to his bedside. And this was an extraordinarily healthy, successful person. So the issue there with the recalls is that Amazon had that information. They could have given it to him earlier. We knew that people were getting sick. And all that Amazon had to do was just send that recall notice earlier. And why didn't they? Was there an answer? Not, not a solid answer of why it took so long. That must be very frustrating. As the journalist reporting, you're like, dude, you could have saved some pain. Yes, you could have saved tremendous amounts of pain. And in that case, the family was really close-knit and kind of got through it. And yeah. And he also recovered. He recovered, but you never really recover. The question is, will you ever need like another kidney transplant? Have you had kidney failure? Um, The kind of issues that come out of it don't go away. What are the host of issues that result from some of these contaminants? So with Lucas Parker, my two-year-old boy I've been following around, so he had the five bets of salad. Within a week, he started throwing up, having bloody diapers, and then he went into having kidney failure. Then he went into a stroke, and he's legally blind now. He can't move, and um, he relies on a feeding tube for all of his nutrition, which is also devastating because that puts you into this world of all these like packaged foods. So... Yeah, that's what E. coli can do to you if it doesn't kill you. Are there fears that you have inside packaged foods? With packaged foods, I think there's been a lot of reporting already on that. A lot of like inroads have been made in that, like things to be aware of and like chemicals in your foods. And with packaged foods, like I know Pepperidge Farm Goldfish, they had a recall in the last couple of years. But I will say Pepperidge Farm, they made it easier to like just pull up on your phone and they made it like little pictures. And it was the, um, the cheddar you know, the way that they had the, I think it was salmonella. So I was able to distinguish it pretty easily when I was in my supermarket. And do you feel like the um, frequency of recalls is accelerating? Do we see that the food system is getting worse, more dangerous for us, or not really? It's a good question, and I can't remember what the latest recall data is because with lettuce, which I've been so immersed in, there haven't been many recalls. Whereas with soy nut butter, I was really much more concentrated on recalls. Okay, so we could expand from recalls to outbreaks. Do we see a greater incidence of outbreaks in this food system that we as consumers feel pretty good about usually. There's a good debate about this going on. We have more cases of E. coli happening right now in the United States. That's statistically shown by CDC. 
We also have better data collection happening. The testing that they're using, they're new, using new types of tests. They're cheaper and they're easier to figure out. So if I went to the doctor and the doctor thought I had E. coli, he or she could give me a test. They'd know in a few days. And also know to not give me antibiotics, which could worsen my condition. That said, those aren't getting into the case counts because um, CDC isn't recognizing these, these CIDT tests. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about all the ways in which our food system can be challenging. Stay with us. I'm Ethan Frisch, co-host of Why Food and co-founder of Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. We set our partner farmers up to export their own crops for the first time, and they get access to a whole new market here in the U.S., and we get access to spices that other companies can't source. We're honored to work with restaurants including 11 Madison Park, Blue Hill, and Chez Panisse, as well as thousands of home cooks across the country. Visit us at burlapandbarrel.com. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly. Today, my guest is Christine Haney, and we are talking about food crimes, misdemeanors, death, and <laughs> E. coli, and more. So, Christine, when I looked through your vast investigative archives, I found you know some, some themes and counterfeiting was a theme that I was fascinated by, where, let's say, the Chinese are going to put labels on wine and call it Bordeaux. Yes. Is there a lot of counterfeiting in the wine world? There has been quite a bit of counterfeiting in the wine world, and that has paralleled a lot of kind of growth and wealth in China. And because there is such an obsession with having a certain label and a certain brand, so you could have a top, top, top Bordeaux, but if it's not like a brand, it, it just won't catch the same way. So yes, we have had some wonderful counterfeiting stories <laughs> in the past. There was a crackdown when there was kind of a compression in Chinese government and that you couldn't give it as gifts to government officials. So they, they did kind of benefit from that contraction. Is there a lot of counterfeiting in food in general, like mislabeling. I think fish is another great example of counterfeiting is probably not the right word, but it's mislabeling. It's yes. like intentional mislabeling. Why are fish so often faked? Because you can get away with it. Um, FDA oversees seafood and the percentage of seafood that is imported has had an extraordinary growth in the past couple of decades. It's gone from something like half of the food fish we consume is from abroad to like 95%. So that's one thing that's happening, and there just aren't enough inspectors to oversee and monitor the fish that is imported. The other thing is you can commit a lot of crime in food and get away with it. That's why criminals like food. So counterfeiting, whether it's honey and misrepresenting labels there, it's seafood, you can commit a lot of crime, make a lot of money, and not spend a lot of time in prison. <laughs> I'm not sure which is the worst part, that you don't get to spend a lot of time in prison. The, the, the counterfeiting is easy. It's easy because you don't get caught. Is that why it's easy? It's easy because you don't get often don't get caught, one. But two, there aren't a lot of penalties in the United States for doing things that hurt our food supply or you know, misrepresent our food supply. And is there a history to that that you understand from having done all the research? You know, I actually, I talked to this one 
investigator, and he was on this case that we worked on for Rotten Season 2. And they, they, you know, they had to eventually take him off this case he was pursuing because they had to deal with robbers and rapists and much more pressing things that law enforcement officials have to deal with that day. So it doesn't sort of crack the top three of um, societal ills. And what about the case of the honey? Because the, the honey was uh, diluted, right? It was yes. adulterated. It was adulterated, and in some cases with antibiotics. Oh! Yes, yes. So that's why you wanted to stay away from that contaminated, <laughs> contaminated honey. And that's one of our biggest food fraud cases in U.S. history. Tell me about that, because I knew that um, the honey was adulterated, but I did not realize it had been... Like, who would spend the money to dose with antibiotics? Yeah, that the, the, the honey was coming from China, and it was being mislabeled and making its way through a company in Chicago and then also implicating another company in Texas. One of the things I loved about reporting on that case is one of the guys who was like a kingpin in it, he went to Harvard, I'm going he went to Harvard undergrad and Harvard business school. And then you just kind of get into these like very fascinating debates of like, you had options. You did not have to go into the world of committing fraud. And so much of what you see when you kind of investigate crime is that people resort to that because they don't have options. So food criminals are also fascinating because they have choices. Is it greed? Yeah, I do find that greed definitely has something to do with it. It's laziness. In the Peanut Corporation of America case, the peanut butter that killed people... They have emails where they knew the peanut butter was contaminated and they had executives saying, like, just ship it anyway, and they had that documented. So that shows kind of willful ignorance. And maybe they don't believe that the worst outcome would happen because obviously if the worst outcome is people die, eventually you would get tagged for that. Yes. You know what I mean? Like they think they can get away with it, which is one of the reasons that they uh, think they could do it. Are, are food crimes generally committed by sort of white-collar criminals? There's a strong white-collar component to it. Yeah. So in terms of criminals, a lot of them are very poised and presentable. It's not like your standard Metrodesk crime reporting. It really isn't. It's more akin to like a business desk, you know, white-collar securities fraud kind of reporting. Let's talk about your career for a minute. You've chosen to be a journalist, but it feels like a very direct path, but you've had a lot of choices along the way. What has that career path felt like to you? I think when we met, I was uh, in a very structured world of a New York Times media desk reporter, and I went worked my way up in papers, a junior reporter at the Washington Post, at the Wall Street Journal, at the Times, and then you realize that your career is not that linear. So I've always just trying to figure out what's next. And there, there is like a method to the madness. But what is the method? I guess to do something that I'm most passionate about in terms of waking up every morning and wanting to do. Being a writer today, I think, is one of the hardest professions to choose. Being an investigative reporter adds a lot onto that. What do you say to people who want to be writers these days who want to go into journalism? It's a good question. And also, what do you say to to women who want to go into this profession. <laughs> Let's take both of them. <laughs> I say to women who wanted to go into journalism that you should really pursue your passion and you should just go for it. At the same time, I say that you should not take a vow of poverty and you should not sell yourself short. And my mom said that to me once when I was badly paid at the Washington Post. She said, you didn't take a vow of poverty to become a journalist. There should be baseline things. I believe that women should be able to 
own their own homes. I should believe they should be men and women, you know, save for retirement, have um, a nest egg if they need to take a flight to see a sick relative. These are basic things that I feel you should be allowed to do in your profession. Journalism doesn't always let you do that. So you either want to choose the opportunities that do and, and don't settle. What do you think of journalism's future? Like the outlets, many of them are shrinking. So it's harder to find a job and it's harder to see a future path. Do you see that? Yes. One thing I see also like with television, even though there's all this money going into streaming and all that, because those are all contract jobs. I worry for the people who work for me because I don't see them in jobs where they have W-2s and they can buy homes and build equity and and not live lavish lives. But, but that I worry about and have tried to steer actually one woman I mentor into more of like a traditional newspaper job because mm-hmm. I would like her to have those things. I'd like her to have maternity leave. Mm-hmm. I'd like her to have health insurance. I feel like I've tried to steer women on a very individual basis. Ironically, in the last few weeks, I've had four different people come to me saying, I'm interested in journalism, and I am not quite as optimistic as you are. I mean, I feel like, at least from the magazine side, it's contracted so much. Yes. And so I'm thinking about other ways that you take these exact same skills and employ them elsewhere, like opening the notion of like what journalism is or, or what writing is. Yeah, I think that's a great suggestion um, because I do believe in walking away, even if it is the best brand and everyone thinks it's the best idea. If it's not the best idea, you just need to walk away. I mean, you really inspired me when I was thinking like, oh, I'm at the Times. I, this is where people say you stay for your career. And I thought, well, should I leave and create this web series that became rotten? And you kind of spurred me to make that leap. You never knew where that leap was going to take me. Yeah, I, I, I believe in the leaps only um, because sometimes staying where you are, you know exactly what it is and it isn't what is the right thing. So you have to go somewhere. And you've been going from project to project. Yes, yeah. And do you enjoy having um, your life driven by projects rather than, let's say, being at the Times as you would recommend to somebody else? I'm one of those people who loves stability. You know, I would, if I weren't so impassioned by this, I might just become a postal worker tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) I love security and want everything, you know, planned out ahead of me. So it has to be great to take these leaps of faith that I take. Uh, And any just general advice of what you learned as a reporter, as a human, for people who are trying to figure out what to do next. One thing I would say is don't be scared. One thing I'm finding with a lot of women who are in their 20s, early 30s, who I've mentored, seen in the work world, is that they seem to have a fear. And um, I've seen it with a couple of cases of women not speaking up on when they were treated badly and thinking that they have to kind of appease the people who treated them badly. You don't have to engage. You don't have to fight but you don't have to thank someone who behaved inappropriately. Coming out of the Me Too movement, that's something that I found. I see a lot of fear. And a good friend said to me when returning 40, I'm tired of being scared. And I just thought that was interesting. I was like, yeah, I'm tired of being scared. And speaking up won't kill you. You've chosen to go very deep in food. You could have ended up doing other type of Metro desk. Why food? Like, Why devote this much of your time to food? Well, I think the characters are really fascinating, and I think that the reporting just keeps me going and guides me. I mean, 
you know, working with Spotlight, sometimes like, why am I waking up so early? And I'm so excited to go and talk about this topic. But it makes you really angry. It makes you really angry when two-year-olds have a salad and they now will never live the same way again. So there feels like there's so much to be done. Mm -hmm. This reporting I've done at this time of my life with having like young kids and you're not getting a lot of sleep and you have aging parents... And I, I feel such a passion to keep going with it because there's so much to be done and there's, there is so much to fix that seems fixable. And what do you put in the bucket of fixable? Making um, information about recalls available faster. If I buy something on Amazon and it's recalled, I want to know fast. And I know they have the money and the resources to tell me that. Uh, giving more resources to the FDA so that they can actually find the source. Giving them more support from Department of Justice to go after and kind of scare some of these people who aren't keeping their um, farms clean. But also giving them the science and the support to, to do their jobs better. And how much is it that the anger motivates you? Are there other motivators that are simultaneous? I think it's it's kind of like it's a love for my children. When you watch this family go through this and you think, oh, my God, that could be my child. I mean, Lucas lies on his couch and it's like that day when your child is sick, but you're waiting for them to wake up and then start like, you know, hell breaking loose again. And, and hell is not breaking loose again. He's just immobile. And so you have to channel that into something. And also... When I'm, you know, debating with, you know, my husband, like, oh, can you take the kids? I need to make this one call. When it's on something like this, we're just, we're completely aligned in how important and essential these things are and how how outrageous it is. I mean, if, if I were Lucas's parents, I would want someone to help me. Like, I would just want some guardian angel watching out for me. I mean, there's so many Lucases. Yes. You know. Are there, there are strains, no pun intended, there, there's strains in the work because you've done a lot of work on E. coli, so it crops up and you've found outbreaks before they're announced, which that's a great journalistic skill. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but are there other food groups that you worry about that you're like, ooh, that could be my next piece? I definitely have people next. like approaching me now saying, oh, you should look into this and that. They haven't been on my mind in the last six months. This has been very consuming, but, but they're out there. And it's more when you're kind of going about in your life, like, you know, I just want a salad for lunch. Oh, wait, I shouldn't have a salad for lunch, that that kind of spurs along the journalism. And this would be true of any investigative reporter, I imagine. But is there any feeling inside of you like people can be just bad? Does it change your view of the universe? Well, there's also these interesting gradations of bad in food. So are you bad because you're creating a product like chocolate, which you're actually often exploiting children in Africa? Um, so there's that gradation of bad. There are people... That's bad. <laughs> pretty bad, you know. There's um, people who are knowingly, like in the Peanut Corporation of America case, creating, um, like, peanut butter that sickens you. Jack DeCoster is the egg farmer who was in Maine, and um, he finally went to jail for a very brief time period. Did every violation in the book, and but he said, um, if he told the Boston Globe, I can sin six days a week as long as I repent on Sunday. So you get in these huge moral conundrums with people. Do I believe they're bad? I think from a character perspective and a storytelling perspective, I keep getting kind of interested in, well, what's good? What's redeeming? What is their perception that that is then creating our broken food supply? So 
you don't know the next thing that you would invest in because you have people who are coming to you, but you haven't really settled on what that is. Is it an exciting time, the in-between time, like you've just finished this extraordinary piece of work and it has so many layers to it, right? It'll be published online, it'll be published in print in the globe. There's a documentary, there's so much. What's the feeling when you end that? And what's the feeling that's openness ahead? I just really want to see where it takes me. I'm really curious to see if it brings up other victims because Spotlight gave me these amazing resources to try to find other victims. And I tried to FOIA the names of victims. And What's FOIA? The, Is that uh, File public records requests for all the people who died and they won't disclose that information. So I'm just sitting and waiting and hoping that some of these victims come forward. And, um, and what would be the benefit of that? To actually hear their stories. I mean, I've talked to a lot of victims, but people whose relatives actually died in these outbreaks, that would be fascinating to me. You know, if you're out there, I'm looking for you. (laughs) So you don't feel like you're done with lettuce? I think there's a lot that needs to change, so I don't feel completely done with lettuce, yeah. Um, At the end of each show, I ask my guests to give a shout out broadly to someone in the world of uh, food and hospitality who they admire and who they think more people should know about. Who would that be for you? I actually brought someone from the world of journalism. Journalism's more. great. <laughs> so <laughs> I wanted to give a um, shout out to uh, Patty Wen. She's the head of the Spotlight team. And the thing that's amazing about her is that, and this is not happening in a lot of newspapers in America right now, she um, runs the investigative unit and she is a mom. And the Globe allowed her to work part time and do job shares when her kids were younger. So there was some flexibility. And I've also learned a lot from her about like pacing in your career. Hmm. And she talked to me about how, like, she feels she hasn't experienced burnout like other people because she took time with her kids. She's taken time for these other passions and things that are still getting her to this place in her career. So she was someone I was going to give a shout out to. And is there a product in the food world that you think is underhyped or worth the hype? I... um, don't know how much this fits in with it, but I just for the first time used my great-grandmother's rolling pin with my daughter to bake cookies for the first time this past weekend, which is something I never thought would happen. <laughs> and it was... You, you, you didn't think it would happen because you never bake or because... <laughs> oh, because I didn't know if we... I never knew I'd have a daughter. Yeah. I never knew I'd have kids. And now I have a daughter and I'm baking with her and we're using my great-grandmother's rolling pin. So that was just the most special product. So I was talking about all these products with my husband and he's like, yeah, I like the rolling pin. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that is it for this episode of Speaking Broadly. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, Thank you all for listening. Uh, We'll be back next week. Have a fantastic week signing off for Speaking Broadly. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. 
Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.